Well, as we prepare to hear the scripture this morning, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it is, you know, in the ancient times, everyone thought that they heard the voice of God in the thunder or on the mountain or in the great storms. And yet here we have the story of Elijah. And that's not where he hears the voice of God. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I, remind, I, I just invite us to remain seated even during the gospel lesson today. Sometimes when we stand, and we will stand most Sundays, be out of respect for the gospel. Today, what I would love to have you do is just sit and relax and allow these words to wash over you. This is the story of Jesus healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath in front of the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities. But then notice what he does. Right after that, and out of that comes the naming of the disciples. I believe it took time to recover and took time to prepare, and this is how it happened. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath so that they might find an accusation against him. Even though he knew what they were thinking, he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come and stand here. He got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? And looking around at all of them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew and James, and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. 
He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Given that it's a little different this morning and a little less formal, I'm going to do something very similar with this service as I did with first, and that is to ask you now to go ahead and respond who is, was, your favorite Sesame Street character. Wow. (laughs) Who was it? Oscar. Really? You? <laughs> wow. Okay. Oscar the Grouch. Anybody over here? Cookie Monster. Cookie Monster. Big Bird. Big Bird. Oh, wait, what, what was that? Snuffleupagus. Ernie. <laughs> Who was it? Okay. Kermit the Frog. Yeah, okay. Who was it? Big Bird. Anybody else? Elmo. Okay. Anybody over here? Elmo. Grover. Okay. There it is. Anybody else? The reason I'm asking you to do that is because one of the things I talked about last week at this event was the fact that we looked at kind of social anthropology of worship, particularly, but of society over the last 60 or 70 years and began with a clip from The Wizard of Oz and talked about the fact that if you remember The Wizard of Oz, it was a singular storyline done in a very linear fashion where you just followed Dorothy and her story the whole time. And the visuals were magnificent, but, but it was always one scene and then the next scene and then the next scene and then the next scene. And that Dorothy was in every single part of that movie. But everything changed around the late 60s educationally and suddenly something happened and so much of it twisted and turned on this incredible show, Sesame Street. And we have this indelible image in our minds of all of those incredible characters. My kids beg me to do Grover because Grover was absolutely my favorite. And so at the end of that day of showing The Wizard of Oz and talking social anthropology, I showed my favorite Sesame Street vignette, which is Monster in the Mirror. And it's Grover singing this song, you know, wubba, wubba, wubba. And so, but what you notice is the difference between what you saw in Wizard of Oz and in Monster in the Mirror, there he is looking in the mirror. And there's a small mirror down here where his image is. And there's a picture over here where two monsters who suddenly begin to sing are, while Grover is doing this, with uh, the most unbelievable Western-style wallpaper that suddenly begins to move. And and then as you move into the next place, there um, there is Grover walking down the street, and an image appears behind him in a store window. And then it comes back, and the images start to flash about every two and a half seconds. And you constantly... Are your mind is constantly in motion. Research, we call that multiple simultaneous stimuli. 
And what we have done and become in a society is a society in absolute need now for multiple simultaneous stimuli. The one piece of that that drives me absolutely crazy is I'm watching, sitting there, you know, cuddling with my wife, and we're watching a romantic movie that's on television, and suddenly two figures pop up at the bottom of the screen and scroll along when this show is going to come on. I'm sorry, there are times where I don't want multiple simultaneous stimuli, but we are bombarded with it. I am amazed at my 14-year-old who can sit in front of the television watching Phineas and Ferb, having an earbud in one ear, texting on her phone in the other, and being on the telephone on the other. How in the world do you do that? But you know what? They can And as much as I want to argue with whether that's healthy or not, that is the reality so much of what we're dealing with. And you think I'm going to stop with the children or the youth. I'm not. Because what's happened for us as adults is we have continued to surround ourselves and deepen our need for constant work or constant stimulation or constant something. I will go into a hospital room where someone is in need and that television will be loud and and, and it won't turn off. Or I'll go on a pastoral call in someone's home and the radio or the television or something will be on and I don't have the heart to ask them to turn it off. Or those folks, and we have them right here in this church, who are working so hard that they never get a break. And then we wonder why we can't sleep at night. Psychology will tell us that the reason we can't sleep at night is because that's the only opportunity our minds have to truly process all the information that we bombarded ourselves with during the day. Listen to this quote. Um, This is from Leonard Bernstein, the great conductor. He writes, Yet stillness is our most intense mode of action. It is our moments of deep quiet that are born every idea, every emotion, and the foundation for our drive, which we eventually honor with the name of action. Our most emotionally active time of life is lived in our dreams, and our cells renew themselves most industriously in sleep. We reach highest in meditation. We reach highest in meditation and farthest in prayer. Think about that statement for just a second. We reach highest in meditation and farthest in prayer. In stillness, every human being is great. We are free from the experience of hostility We become a poet and most like an angel. Profound words from a man better known for creating sound, right? But he gets it. There is a complexity in silence. And I think for many of us, there is an anxiety that comes to us in those times of silence. We're not quite sure what to do with it. We don't know where to go with it. 
And yet, if you believe all of those things that I just said, psychologically, emotionally, it is in creating those times of silence that we become most healthy. And as those who believe in a greater force, in creating those times of silence, are we able to hear that still small voice? I mentioned in the gospel piece you notice that Jesus does an in-your-face right there to the Jewish authorities. Anytime we confront, anytime we are in those kinds of spaces, it creates something in us that is in need of processing. And here we have this story where he does that, then goes off by himself to pray, then comes back and seems to be ready to anoint and name those that will be his most significant followers. He even needed that space and time. So my question to you as a church is, are you taking that space and creating that space? Are you taking that time where you can stop for a little while and create space for God? Do you know And maybe you don't believe me, but you won't know until you try this. Five minutes. Five minutes. There's not a person in this room, not a person in this sanctuary who can't spend five minutes in quiet. My bigger question is, will you do it? Will you take on that challenge? And what will invariably happen if we don't do this normally is in that five minutes and we sit there and we're in a relaxed position and it needs to be in a time where we've already had our coffee. But but don't fall asleep. But what will happen is as you open your mind, suddenly these things will begin to stream by. And you know what? That's okay. I love the metaphor of it's like being at the train station. Just let the trains go by, but stay at the station. You know, and just set them aside and then sit again. And if something comes in, set it aside and sit quietly again. If you practice that, if you do that every day for a week, what you will notice is something changes. As you ask God to be present with you in that time, as you ask God to show God's self in a tangible way to you, I've got to tell you, it's not going to be some beautiful baritone voice that comes into your mind. It will be something out of your own soul that engages with this power. And you will know, you will know when that happens, there will be a peace that descends. The ancients that wrote the story of creation understood the need for this. Because in the, in the whole story of creation, what does it end with? And they all live happily ever after? Well, maybe, but not really. That's not the story. It ended with Sabbath, Shabbat. It ended with God, and the word is not rest. The, the word is stopped. God stopped and was in awe of all that was around them. Friends, when was the last time you just stopped? 
even if it was, even if it was just to listen to the lapping of the waves on the shore, even if it was sitting somewhere where you could just watch the entire sunset, even if it was to listen and hear the beautiful sounds of our children, even if it's that time with a friend where you can just sit quietly in the safety of that space. Let me close with this thought. I wonder what marriage would be like if there was one there who never listened. I wonder what our children would be like if we never stopped and listened to them. I wonder what relationships would be like in friendships if only one of us ever listened. It is by design that we stop and listen. I wonder what the community would be like if we never stopped and looked at the need. I wonder what life would be like if we never stopped and paid attention to those beyond ourselves. Stillness is our most intense mode of action. It is our moments of deep quiet that are born every idea, emotion, and drive, which we eventually honor with the name of action. Our most emotionally active time of life is lived in the quietness of our dreams. And our cells renew themselves most industriously in sleep. We reach highest, highest, maybe deepest in meditation and farthest in prayer. In stillness, every human being is great. We are free from the experience of hostility. We become a poet and most like an angel. One more challenge. Five minutes. Five minutes. Carve it out of your day. Five minutes. Every leader in this church needs to spend five minutes before a meeting in preparation and listening to the still small voice of God. Every one of us as a human being needs to spend that time so that we might see, not with our own eyes alone, but with the eyes of God, the needs around us. Five minutes. Five. And watch what happens. Let's pray. Lord God, in the midst of this place, help us dedicate ourselves even to five minutes every day. May they be a Sabbath moment for us to be refilled with you, to listen to what you would say to us, to allow the trains to go by, but to stay stationary so that we might know more fully what it is that we are to be and do. Help us deepen this relationship with you by not just speaking, but by listening. 
and we will sense your grace in new ways. All this we ask in the powerful name of the one who taught us how, Jesus. Amen.